Today's reading comes from Psalm 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even darkness is not dark to you. Even the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Well, this is one of my favorite psalms. Back in 1977, NASA sent out a spacecraft called the Voyager. And if you're not familiar with the mission of the Voyager, so the Voyager's mission was to go out into our solar system and to take pictures of all the different planets in our solar system, which it did. And kind of at the end of that mission, when it had reached all the way to the outer limits of our solar system, NASA commanded the Voyager to turn one last time toward the solar system and to take one final picture. And I want to show it to you. It's a really famous picture. Uh, which is not immediately overwhelming, is it? All right, so I want you to find the earth in that picture. And I'm going to give you a clue. It's right there. Can you see it? A tiny little blue speck. Carl Sagan, who was part of the team of people that commanded it to turn and take the picture, famously named this photograph the pale blue dot, And then in a commencement address that he gave at Cornell University about two years before he died, he said the following, and I'm going to read it to you, and it is full of brilliance and some error. And I want you to see where the error is. He says this, he says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. 
the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, every hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species, lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth, he concludes, rightly, is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena, and far more so, if I can just break in, than this picture shows. So this is a picture of what it looks like, our planet, from the outer limits of our solar system. It's just a speck, but the reality is, as we've talked about here in the past, that our solar system also is just a speck, like the whole solar system, at least relative to the size of the Milky Way galaxy, which is our galaxy. And so the size of our solar system relative to the size of our galaxy is like comparing a quarter with the entire landmass of North America. Just take that in for a second. But what about the galaxy? Because that seems big until you realize that it's just a speck. A speck in a universe in which it is only one galaxy amongst literally hundreds of billions of galaxies. So the earth is a speck in a speck that is itself just a speck. He speaks rightly when he says the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Then he continues and he says, Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. And then he says this, and I want you to remember it. He says, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. He continues, he says, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark in our obscurity in all this vastness, he concludes, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Think about that for a minute. So according to Carl Sagan, the conclusion is, we human beings are number one, unimportant. And number two, utterly, totally, helplessly, despairingly alone. That is not the message of the Bible. It is not the message of the gospel. And it is absolutely not the message of David in this psalm that Drew just read for us. In fact, the message is exactly the opposite. Listen again to what David says. He says to the choir master, a psalm of David, and then he says this, he says, O Lord, and you just got to stop every once in a while and go, okay, let's think about the Lord. Like what Lord? The Lord who created this incredibly vast universe. Why? Because it surely isn't because we needed the extra room. I mean, guys, we've made it to the moon, you know? Like, that's impressive. <laughs> but not that impressive, is it? Why did God create a universe in which we live on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam? Why? What is the purpose? Because He does not hide that from us. 
He created this universe, and this implies, by the way, value for us in order to give us a glimpse of his infinite wisdom and of his infinite creative abilities and of his infinite power and of his infinite glory, really the sum total of all that he is. He comes to us in his word and he says, I'm the creator, so let me tell you why I created a universe that we are just continuing to discover and discover and discover and it seems like it just goes on forever because the heavens have a purpose and it is to declare the glory of God and the sky above is to proclaim the works of my God's hands. He did all of that to send a message to you. And then on top of that, he put you and I on this teeny tiny little planet in which the economy of this world teaches us every single day that it is not that which is plentiful, that it is not that which is common, that it is not that which is everywhere that is that which is most valuable. It's that which is small. It's that which is rare. It's that which is limited in quantity and in number. Listen, far from our tininess, our littleness, if you will, defining us as insignificant, our littleness speaks of our great significance. It's an interesting thought. And far from leaving us alone on this planet, my goodness, David says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. And the word searched is a mining term. So here's what David's saying. He's saying, Lord, uh, the whole t- sum total of me, my life, my being, I, David, am like a bucket of dirt that you have mined up out of the ground. And then you have sat down with your sifter and it is fine and it is perfect. And you have poured out every single second of my life into your sifter. And with your perfect gaze, you have penetrated and seen absolutely every single bit of my life. In fact, he says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. What is he talking about? He's saying, Lord, you know what I'm doing all of the time and not just what I'm doing, but what I'm thinking. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar, which means that you're not even alone in your own mind. Are you? You search out my path, he says, and a path is something that you walk, you know, in public. You know, you walk down the sidewalk, you walk down the road. He's saying, my public life, that's been put into the sifter, you've sifted through the whole of it, but not just that. He says, in my lying down, which incidentally is something you do in your bed, but it's not the only thing that you do in your bed, and that is his point, incidentally. He's saying, even my most private and intimate affairs, you've sifted. You've seen from every angle. You yourself have worked through perfectly. Lord, he says, you are acquainted with all of my ways and indeed your knowledge of me is so comprehensive that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together and far from this being a comforting reality for David, this is a discomforting reality for David. In fact, he's terrified by this. Why? Because just like everyone else, he understands there are things in the bucket of dirt that is him that he would prefer that God had not seen, but God has seen it. He has seen it. And it's suffocating. He says in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Sound comforting? It's not. It's a military metaphor. He's saying you have laid siege to me and utterly captured me. The idea being by outing me in my own stuff. And now he begins to come psychologically unglued. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's actually not 
what it says. That's what it says in the English because the English translators come along and they find all of these little fractured sentences and they start filling in words to smooth it out. Leave it alone. He's speaking in fractured sentences. It's remarkable. You ever done that? Every kid has done that. All of my kids have done that. If you have kids, you've seen this happen. Why? Because all of our kids, at least when they're little, and sometimes when they're not so little, have like a precious something that is like the most valuable treasure in all of the earth. And you know the perils, don't you, if it gets lost. I mean, we all understand these things. But, but we've seen this with our kids. Like Morgan, for example. She's 23. She's probably here. So, sorry, honey. But she had a little Peter Rabbit stuffed animal when she was a girl. Like when she was born... I think we bought her this rabbit or something. And then I had to go buy three or four of these rabbits and I rotated the rabbits until she realized there was more than one rabbit, in which case then she ended up with all of the rabbits. But she would sleep with this little rabbit. She would suck on its ears, which is why we bought the other ones. Because anyway, and she would actually literally, while she was sleeping, she would take her little finger and she would stroke the face of her rabbit while she's asleep. It was amazing. And her rabbit had a name and the name was Money. You take the word my and you take the word bunny, put them together, you get the word money, which is cool when you understand that. But like when you're standing at the church nursery, like with a whole line of parents, you know, and your two-year-old is in the church nursery and she's lost her money and she sees you and she comes psychologically unglued and she comes screaming, running, my money, my money, tears and snot, like All of the parents look at you like, what kind of an evil dad would steal from a two-year-old? You know, like, you can't explain that. Haley had a blankie. It's actually the name of the blankie. It's very original. Blankie, that's it. It was actually a blanket my grandmother knit for Morgan, but Haley is a middle child. And when you are a middle child, you're going to assert your presence. And so she took the blanket and it became her blanket. She still has the blanket. It's about yay big now. So if it's about a 10 inch square, more like a ball, because it's just a bunch of knots that are, that are, and she's 18 and she has that at college right now, actually, um, in her pillowcase, because, uh, you know, but it was her blankie and blankie was everything, man. My son, it was like, I don't know, action figures, dinosaurs, all these little animal things. He called all animals were called moos. If it was a dog, it was a moo. If it was a cat, it was a moo. Whatever. It just They all had precious things. And if you're a parent, you know the trauma of stopping for lunch, you know, and on a way home from a long trip and, and going to Chick-fil-A because, I don't know, it's where we all go, it seems, and they're awesome, except on Sunday. Ugh. Anyway... Um, and then getting back in the car and you put them in the seats and they fall asleep because they're all full and then they wake up 400 miles away from Chick-fil-A and you've left their money at Chick-fil-A, right? And what happens? Fractured sentences. You know, it's a <laughs> money, a restaurant, you turn around, you know, you're mean, you know, it's, it's it, it's all they're capable of. Now, I want you to think about that. That's a three-year-old. David is the king of Israel. He is a brilliant, well-educated, articulate, powerful man. And the reality 
that God has taken the whole of every moment of his life and poured it out into a sifter and literally sifted through and seen it all is so crushing to him that he is reduced to the stammerings of a child. It's remarkable. And all he can think to do in that moment is to run. It's your instinct. I've I, I, I got to get away from this God. I, I, I need to get out of here now. And then he begins to think about it and he realizes, yeah, but then when am, where am I going to go? There isn't anywhere to go. He says in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? For you see, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like I do, like you do. You and I can only be at one place at one time, which is what makes Find My Friends with my kids so incredibly wonderful. If you want to have a cell phone, you live in my house, you have Find My Friends, or you don't have a cell phone, that's the way that it works. And so then I can look and see where my son is at any particular time or whatever. Are they on their way home? Are they? It's awesome. You can't do that with God. It's not like you can pull him up and find my friends, oh, God's in Pompano, you know? So we'll go see him, and there's a great Dairy Queen up there, by the way, so we'll hit that. It's not the way that it works. He's a spirit. He's everywhere. All the time. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee? Because it's what he wants to do from your presence and now he begins to work this out. He says, listen, if I, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave under the earth is the idea. Yeah, you're there too. And he's not just thinking vertically. He's not just saying, if I go up, you're there. And if I go down, you're there. He's saying, you know what? Heaven is associated with joy. Heaven is associated with bliss. If I'm happy, you're there too. When I'm sad, grief, the grave, sorrow, there you are as well. He continues, he says, if I take the wings of the morning, what is that? That's a reference to the sunrise. The sun rises in the east, incidentally. If I take the wings of the morning and then and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, what sea? Well, to the Jew and Israel, the Mediterranean. It's to the, it's to the west. Even there, he says, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall lay hold of me. But here again, he's not just thinking horizontally. He's not just thinking spatially. The sun rises in the east into the ancient Near Eastern mind. The east is associated with life. It looks like the sun is coming up out of the earth when you look at it on the horizon. And it brings light and life to the world, does it not? But what is the west? It's the place where the sun goes to die, man. And as it dies, it sprays the sky with red, the color of blood. And as it's extinguished, all goes dark and cool. The Egyptians understood this. They built their temples on the east. That's life. They built their pyramids, their tombs, on the west side of the Nile River. It's death. David's saying, okay, so here's the deal. If I go up, you're there. Down, you're there. If I'm up emotionally, you're there. If I'm down emotionally, you're there. If I go to the east, you're there. West, you're there. If I'm alive, you're there. If I'm dead, you're there. And not only that. But when the sun comes up, the wings of the dawn spray across the sky at the speed of light. How fast does a sailboat travel on the Mediterranean? See? If I move fast, you're there. If I'm moving slowly, you're there. Guys, with his poetry, David is capturing every aspect of human existence and life. And he's saying there is no escape from the presence of God in any of it. And not only that, but he then says there's no hiding from God either. Because he says in verse 11, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me, be as night thus hiding me from you, God. Now that doesn't work either. 
For even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. And so left to himself with his bucket of dirt and all that's in it, spread out into the sifter of the Lord, he has nowhere to run. He has nowhere to hide. And guess what? Neither do we. But we're not left to ourselves. That's the point. That's the whole message of the Scriptures. That's the glory of the Gospel. It is that the God that we're afraid of rightly so, (laughs) so loved us that He overcame His own justice, if you will, with mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. That we have Jesus, the one whose life has been sifted and found perfect, and who willingly in love for you sacrificed and laid down that life so that all the stuff, and I mean all of it, in the bucket of dirt might be taken away and God's presence not be something you're fearful in, but joyful in. Not something you want to flee from, but someone, a heavenly father that you want to flee to. And this aspect of family, it seems, is now what takes over David's meditation as he turns to his special status as the uniquely created child of God. He talks about his own conception and birth. He says in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. That's a reference to his emotional makeup. It's the biblical heart. It's the seat of your emotions. It's the part of him that has been so agitated by the reality of his sin in the presence of God and comforted by the reality of Christ and what He's accomplished. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together like an artist would a tapestry, he says, in my mother's womb. And so I'm a work of art, David is saying. He said, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm your work of art, David is saying. And then he just flat out breaks into worship. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Wonderful. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's a reference to his mother's womb. You're like, well, why does he mention the earth? He's saying, God, just like you created all of humanity from a man that you formed from the womb of the earth, from the dust of the ground, and you were intimately involved in that creative work, so also were you intimately involved in the creative work, that is me. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and more than that, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So not only has God fashioned him emotionally, not only has God fashioned him physically, but God then fashions him by fashioning days and ordaining them for him. Days that will form him, days that will break him, days that will humble him, days that will exhilarate him, days that will devastate him, and days that all together are designed to continue the creative work of God in the life of the one who follows him. In this case, David, to make David into the kind of person he would have for him to be. And then David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. And now notice the irony of this, how vast the sum of them. Why is that ironic? Because it's that which is small that's precious. We talked about that. Unless it's the thoughts of the Lord. There, more is more. He says, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. 
And there's an amazing transformation in that because we started the psalm with David literally freaking out over what God must think of him because he's been searched and known. It's been sifted. But now he's saying, no, 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 no. Lord, you have forgiven that. That's that's taken from me. And your thoughts toward me are awesome. They're precious and they're infinite in number. Such is the love of God for us through Christ. And then it's as if David wakes up from a dream and he reenters this world in which he's called to live as are we. And he says, I awake in verse 18 and I am still with you, but he no longer now desires to run from God. Now he wants to work with God. Now he wants to build God's kingdom. And he uses some really severe language that I think he comes to realize is lacking in self-awareness in terms of his own person. He forgets himself in a moment. And he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. This reference to the enemies of God. Oh, men of bloodshed. Don't miss that. He says, Depart from me. They, these enemies, speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them, David says, with a complete hatred. (laughs) I count them my enemies. All right, why is that lacking in self-awareness? Well, for example, because elsewhere in the Bible, God himself refers to David as a man of bloodshed. You see, you see the problem with that? He forgets who he himself is. He forgets who all of us actually are apart from Jesus. But now it seems that he remembers. And he closes out the psalm like this, beginning in verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Do you remember how he began? You have searched me and known me. He's saying, you know what? Let's do that again. And then when we're done with that, let's do it again. And then after that, I want you to do it again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. And that's the end of the psalm. So here's what I want to end, or here's how I want to end. I want to end by asking you what it is in your bucket of dirt that has in fact been sifted and seen that you really wish that God had never seen, but that you now know that He has seen. Oh, and that there's nowhere to run, and there's nowhere to hide, and that that's actually good if that drives you to Jesus. It's good if it drives you to the one who has formed you emotionally and physically as his own personal work of art, who ordains all the things that happen to you in every one of the days of your lives, those things you call good and bad are redeemed as he uses them to make you more and more like himself. And the one who laid down his life on a cross, suffering infinitely in body and soul to pay the price that you owe to God for all the stuff in the sifter, you know the stuff so that far from fleeing from your father, you can run to your father. Far from fearing him, you can enjoy his presence. And so that you can take your life and join him in his mission of building his kingdom. Guys, we are important. Christ has died for us. And we are not alone. We have Jesus. And the invitation of this psalm really is to realize that and then to come to Him. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that by the work of Christ, um, we can call You that. 
Lord, we thank you that we have no cause for fear through faith in Jesus in your presence. But indeed, we can come to you forgiven and washed, made new and made clean, renewed by your Spirit, forgiven by the work of Christ on our behalf. Boldly we are told to come, and boldly we come to enjoy your presence, to celebrate your goodness, to willingly in in gratitude and in wisdom offer you our lives and ask you in this little wisp of time that is our lives to make something of them that brings you honor and glory for forever. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for the forgiveness that is ours, simply by coming and saying, God, I am a sinner, and I need the forgiveness that Jesus brings. We thank you for the new hope and purpose that is found in him, and praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.